And before I put that up, uh, Tony's prayers prompted me to say just a few things to you uh, to make sure you're up to date with what's happening around here. Uh, we have authority now from both the PCN, the Council at the Parish Church, and the Parish Church, uh, the whole PCC, to appoint a children and families worker combined with a youth pastor. And so that you know what's going to happen, tomorrow we'll put an advert out as widely as we can, and by the end of this month we will have interviewed. We do have a candidate already, a quite exceptional candidate, but it's right and proper that we make that available to others. And uh, so you get the feel for how significant that is. Clearly, we really have needed this uh, children and families worker for some while. But we have to be mindful that Chris will be gone this time next year and will not be immediately replaced. So the idea is we make an appointment now, working in tandem with him, so that this person will be the youth pastor, but as he eases out, they'll ease into the role. That's quite significant. There are quite a few things I want to share with the church on Tuesday at the prayer gathering. So please, if you can be at that, I think these are things that are really vital to the future life of our church. If you can come along, it would be great to see you there. Right then. You see them in the West Midlands, but all over the UK, a series of road signs that mark out the site. Uh, beware, because just around the corner here, 150 people have had accidents, or there have been 83 deaths in the last three years, or what have you. They speak of a black spot. And the message from those notices is clear. Think about what has happened here in the past last year or some of the previous period, and make sure you don't join the statistics. Now, in this letter of Paul, Paul is not concerned with statistics, but he very much is concerned that history doesn't repeat itself. So the non-biblical heading uh, to the passage that's been read is warnings from Israel's history. He's thinking of the history or story of God's people. And throughout this letter uh, to Corinth, Paul's main aim is to get this messy church there to realise they're on God's timetable. Now, to change the analogy uh, and thinking of my wife, instead they are like actors who stumble on the stage in the middle of a performance, not quite sure which act they're currently in. They need at Corinth to discover what's happened so far, how the plot is developing, and how the people who played these characters in previous acts managed to get things so very wrong. And so Paul in this scripture recounts the story of the exodus from Egypt, that together with the exile being the two great defining events and periods of history in the life of Israel itself. And he tells them in order to draw out some particular highlights. And those highlights are fourfold. He speaks of the cloud that led them, the sea that parted before them, the food and the drink that they partook in. So let's look at verses 1 to 4 if you've got your scripture open. It's on page 1151 if you want to look it up. But I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. 
They were all baptised, as it were, into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Pillar of cloud by day and fire by night represented to them the presence of God, Yahweh, with his people. And in a church that this year is thinking about welcome and hospitality. We actually did a bit of theological reflection in our worship work group. And in that work group identified the fact that in worship we are here to host and enter into the presence of the Most High God. Did you come in today not believing that God is only in this building, but that as worshippers we offer hospitality not only to one another, but the God who has a claim on our lives. And here were these folk who were being led in this formative experience by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, and it spoke to them of God's presence. How conscious are you of God's presence in your life, in your circumstance, and in the work that he's called you to do? This God was their protector, their guide and their leader. They were led to safety through the dangerous waters of the Red Sea, which was for them a way to life and freedom, and yet to the Egyptians a way of defeat and death. No early Christian would have had any trouble decoding what Paul was saying. The people of old had been metaphorically baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They'd begun a new life of freedom, having had an old life of slavery. This spoke of their before and after. We've heard today of a family on a journey. But there comes that defining time on the journey when we pass and must pass from darkness to light, when we were lost and are found. And I want to ask this morning, I'll ask it several times, great that you're on a journey, great that I'm on a journey with God, but have you come to know the Saviour who will accompany you on that journey? So Paul hints that the cloud and the sea of the Exodus had functioned for those people like a baptism. The cloud and the sea are like the work of the Spirit and the signifying, the pointing power of water baptism. They mark the end of an old way of life and the beginning of something entirely new. To use the language of the New Testament, being born again isn't jargon. It isn't about a flash-in-the-pan experience, but the start of a complete restoration of life. Some of us were born again a long time ago, but it was only a beginning in Christ, albeit a supernatural beginning. And the key is, on the 3rd of July, 2016, Has that experience of being born again led to a continuing transformation in your life and mine? Are we in the hands of God, the Holy Spirit, who constantly wants to make us new? That is the essence of a healthy Christian life and in turn a healthy church. 
And when Paul wants to say to Corinth, what he wants to say to them is that as dramatic as the events of the Exodus were, now in Christ we are to enter an even more radical break with the past and start over again in the love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is showing here a historical chain of events which are important to those who know God. The first exodus established Israel as God's people. But Israel's story had to lead to the decisive coming of the Christ, the Messiah. And now that new event in Christ was coming true in them, the church in Corinth and the church in Aldridge. Israel, God's people, blew it. The Messiah comes to fulfill what they did not and to bring us into an experience of God. The church, therefore, was born of which every born-again person is a member. If only it was always that neat. You see, a few weeks ago, I took my car for a service and the garage told me at the time, everything was fine, sir, but your car should have been recalled last year because of a faulty part. The design of the car was fine, but a component was entirely suspect. Now, it's purely incidental that I went in for a service and an MOT and came out with a new car. That breaks down my analogy, but that's actually what happened. And so what Paul is saying at Corinth is this. God's design for his people was fine. But Israel failed to operate as the designer intended. They were recalled time and again to God's new life. But in the end, God needed to send his son to do what Israel had failed to do. To be a light to the nations. And now he says to Corinth, you are a part of God's new Israel. He designed you to be a light to the nations. Instead, you're giving off a false or a dim light. What God wants for you and from you is not automatic or magic. That sequence of event, Israel, Messiah, Church, was broken. And so often in the life of an individual Christian, the life of a church, we don't fulfill what God wants from us and for us. The process is interrupted. What you were before you came to Christ, he's saying, needs to be put away. And what you are now needs to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Wake up, Corinth, he's saying. You are stumbling around and missing God's very best for you. Basically, as Paul is preparing the ground here for what he wants to say in the second half of chapter 10, and that's somebody else's business next week. He wants Corinth to be built into God's glorious people. And frankly, they're a shambles. Or to be polite, a messy church. To get there, he first needs to re-establish the foundations so that when the building goes up, they will stand firmly in place. And he goes on to talk here of baptism. And baptism is seen here by Paul not as a simple event, but as a radical sign of a new beginning. It says to Elsie and to her mum and dad, 
you are to be newly made in Jesus Christ. The day's event of baptism is only a pointer to something far more extensive that God wants to do in your life. You are signified in baptism as having a new life in Christ. Live, therefore, a new life with him at the centre. And for those of us who were baptised, whether as babies or as believing adults, baptism functions in the same way. Your baptism constantly calls you back to the Christ who gave you a new life. Your baptism constantly calls you and me to be salt and light in the world. And he's saying, Corinth, you've missed it. Something's gone wrong. A part needs replacing. You need to find your place in Christ afresh. And later he will show them uh, what a great privilege they have of sharing God's love symbolised in the bread and wine of Holy Communion. Again, that will come on later in our series. Yet neither of these sacraments, baptism or Holy Communion, are magic. They are pointers, signs of grace, which is not automatically appropriated. When you come today to receive Holy Communion, you can walk away having taken just bread and wine. Or you can have met with the living God. You can step forward to receive simple emblems. Or by the grace of God, you can know afresh that you are deeply loved. That God has a purpose for you. And that he's calling you in this simple act of breaking bread together to a new life in Christ. Which will it be? Which will it be for me? And which will it be for you? So then, the grace of God needs to be received and embraced. These things, these symbols that God gives us are way markers to continue in Christ's way. But first, this is his message in this passage, they need to live now as a people who, like Israel of old, have entered into a whole new way of life. So what does Paul call to the messy church at Corinth have to say to you and me right now? Today I believe this passage of scripture says to us, are you just outwardly Christian? Or have you truly begun a new life in Jesus Christ? Have you been, not simply on a journey, but have you been born again by the Spirit of God? Not jargon, but the life of God coming in as we turn to Christ. Have you actually become a Christian? How are you living this new life differently? was the question for Corinth and the question for us. Are you not only singing Jesus is Lord, but living as if he is your Lord? And the test of that will not be seen in here today, but tomorrow through Saturday. Are we living together as if God truly reigns amongst us? And are we seeking together to give him the priority priority this new life in Christ calls for? Are you and I growing as Christians and becoming more mature 
as disciples of Jesus Christ, week on week and month by month. To begin with Christ needs to lead to a hunger for growth. It calls for a newness of life which comes through repentance when we discover that we have blown it in some way. To grow in Christ is not something we can ever achieve on our own. Christianity is not a moral compass. It's a living relationship with God. And therefore we need God's help, his grace and his love to keep our hearts and minds tender and true. We need to be teachable as well as to be taught. So the real teaching doesn't happen here. It happens instead here, amongst the people who are hungry to grow in their faith. And unless you're hungry today, I promise you that by the end of this service, you'll have forgotten most of what I've said. Because the only way of retaining it is when we want to live it. So the pulpit has its place. But the real core of things is in the lives of those sat in the pew, or in our case, more comfortable seats. Repeat those questions again for us to reflect upon. And the thing I want to say to us, I deliberately framed them in the way that I did today for this reason. During the course of this year, the leadership, the church council and others will be thinking very carefully about some of the questions raised about the well-being and health of our church. But they won't be questions just for the leadership and for the church council. They will be for us as a church. And so those questions become really important that you answer them with honesty and integrity. How closely and how much newness of life is evident in you and me right now? Are we really growing members of the family of God? Not in numbers only, but in depth of commitment to Jesus. Before I move on to the last few verses for today, I want to capture and underline a point way back in verse 1, which covers this whole theme for today. How does God's story and ours blend together? Paul describes the Israelites in verse 1 as ancestors or our fathers. He understands the church, the Messiah's people, composed as it was in Corinth of mostly ex-pagan Gentiles as now the children of Israel. The church has not replaced the old Israel in God's purposes. The Messiah fulfills and completes what Israel was called to be and all those who now truly belong to the Messiah, that is Jesus, Jew and Gentile, are saved by him. We are now God's people and we are in that sense heirs of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and the people of the Exodus. And Paul was telling the Corinthians and us that we are part of a very big story. And now we must all take our place in that story at this season of history. Amazing. An amazing story. 
amazing grace, amazing privilege, amazing God. And that leads us on to these final verses of 6 to 13. And here is a catalogue of ills that Paul says needs sorting out. Once we have received new life in Christ, we must continue on the journey of faith. Our lives are to be transformed and continue on the way. Now, I think it was just over a week ago, I went with three ladies from our congregation on a trip to Stafford. And uh, when we were just getting near the motorway, because I went a particular route to the M6, one of these ladies said, you've got this all wrong, don't you? Don't you know? I could have shown you a shortcut. So, fair enough. And we came back via the shortcut. And then yesterday, I had another meeting, or rather Thursday, was it yesterday? I had another meeting in Stafford, and I thought, right, I'll show them. And I went and set off to do this back lane way to Stafford. Now, I just want to reassure you, I do know how to get to Stafford. But I listened to those who were my fellow passengers the previous week, and I set off. I've seen a fair bit of South Staffordshire in that little trip, I tell you. So, in verse 6, Paul says, avoid or forget selfish, evil ways of an old life. Don't get rocked off into wrong direction. Embrace the new life. Abandon the idols of a life focused on yourself or false hopes or a false direction. Find God's new route for his people. And don't get lost. Or verse 8. If in your old life sex ruled your mind and became the chief end of your social life, instead of one being transformed by Christ, see sex as a gift from your Creator to be enjoyed very differently to the cultural norms in Corinth and 21st century Western society. Paul isn't commending some nice, decent behaviour here or a few new rules. He's encouraging us to have a whole new outlook in life. Whole life discipleship, as we've come to understand it, is an acknowledgement that when we truly follow Christ, life in every aspect is to be viewed and lived differently. Our outlook to life is to be changed as a Christian. Our outlook on priorities are changed. Our outlook on money is changed. Our outlook on relationships is changed. Our outlook on careers is changed. Our outlook on the use of time is changed. Our outlook on retirement is changed. Our outlook on what we want for our children is changed as a consequence of living under the Lordship of Christ. Our outlook on death is different if we are in Christ. And you see, if that's true, if it really is true, how changed are we? How changed am I? How changed and different to wider society is our life as a church?
I think Paul wrote this because instead of taking a wrong turning to Stafford, the church at Corinth had lost its way and it was in danger of going back to a way of life where Christ was ignored. And everything I'm saying, hopefully in line with the scripture, is when we become followers of Christ, everything is up for grabs. And most of us have an argument with God and say to him at some point or another, God, you can have any bit of my life you like. But can we just discuss this one? I've done it, and I'd be really surprised if you haven't too. That's why in verse 10, Paul warns against the kind of grumbling which the Israelites regularly engaged in, wishing that they'd never left Egypt and suggesting that they might even go back there. That's the point. Having escaped from paganism, having been embraced by God's love in the gospel, do you really want to exercise your rights and your freedoms to do as you like? including going back to doing things that when you came to Christ should have no place in the future. Do we really want as Christians ever to go back to an Egypt, a way of life that made no room for the God who saves and transforms? Christians, Paul tells us that we are part of one long story and our lives are literally meant to be writing the next chapters, the latest chapters. Not the next chapter for APC. Not the next chapter for Aldridge. But the next chapter for the kingdom of our great God and his Christ. For in that kingdom, there is room only for that Christ to reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's be still for a moment. Father God, we have taken just a few moments to be quiet and to ask ourselves the most profound questions possible. We've not got enough time to linger on those questions here together. But we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us individually and as a church to answer each of those questions from the scripture and from this sermon that helps us to live healthy new life together in Christ, that your kingdom may come in our midst and your glory seen in the world. Amen.